Welcome to Keystone Education Radio, the podcast for all things focused on education in Pennsylvania. This podcast is sponsored in part by Tremco Roofing and Building Maintenance. This is Annette Stevenson, your podcast host. Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas was a landmark 1954 Supreme Court case in which the ruling was unanimous that racial segregation of children in public schools was unconstitutional. Brown v. Board of Education was one of the cornerstones of the civil rights movement, and it helped establish the precedent that separate but equal education and other services were not in fact equal. Sixty-five years later, where are we now? How did this case and the surrounding events impact society? I'm turning over the podcast to our own PSBA Director of Equity Services, Dr. Heather Bennett, who will host this discussion. Hello, um, it's really great to be here. My name is Dr. Heather Bennett. I am the Director of Equity Services for the Pennsylvania School Boards Association, and I am so excited um, to introduce our speaker today. It's Dr. Erica Frankenberg. She is the Associate Professor of Education in the Department of Education Leadership at the Pennsylvania State University. And I just want to say thank you, Erica. Thank you for being here. Thanks for the invitation. And so we get to have an awesome conversation about something that I'm extremely passionate about um, and Dr. Frankenberg uh, has definitely done so much extensive research on is the the case of Brown v. Board of Education and the aftermath and how it affects school districts across the country as well as it affects uh, school districts in the state of Pennsylvania. So the first question that I have uh, is can you please just describe what is the Brown v. Board of Education case? Sure it's widely recognized as one of the most significant U.S. Supreme Court decisions, certainly one of the most important ones of the 20th century. And it was a case in 1954 that considered school segregation laws that were at the time present in 17 states, mostly in the former Confederacy and the border regions of the Confederacy. These states required that black and white students or permitted localities to assign black and white students to separate schools. The cases came to to the court asking the question, is segregated school inherently unequal? And this was to to challenge segregation under the 14th Amendment of our U.S. Constitution that says that you can't restrict opportunity based on race, among other characteristics. And so Thurgood Marshall and the other lawyers from the Legal Defense Fund argued that not only were these separate schools Uh, unequal in terms of resources, which was under the Plessy decision at the time used to legitimate segregation. He said that as long as they were equal, they could be separate. The the lawyers, and Thurgood Marshall was leading this, said, in fact, separate is inherently unequal, that black students, and you relied on social science research that continues to be confirmed today, black students going to segregated schools are learning this sense of inferiority that is likely to affect them their entire lives. One of the other pieces of social science evidence that um, was presented to the court, unfortunately didn't make it into the decision, but I think it's really important to note here, based on our contemporary uh, environment, is that they also cited research showing that white students got these inflated senses of superiority from going to white segregated schools because they saw that their schools were better than the ones that black students were attending. And so on the basis of the importance of education in producing citizens, voters, um, future workers, 
Uh, the court said it is unlikely that this injury of segregated schools could ever be repaired, and therefore it's unconstitutional. Now, the the decision, and, and I think it's a really important one, and I would urge listeners to, to go and look into the decision and read it. It's a um, really important language about our, our constitutional system. But at the same time, Earl Warren, who was the chief justice, wanted to make sure that the decision was unanimous um, because he feared that there would be resistance to the decision in the places that had racial segregation of schools and, and quite frankly, racial segregation in many aspects of, of public life. Schools was just the one that was being challenged here because it was funded by the state. He sort of punted on the question of, so what does this require? And in fact, set for re-argument the following year, questions about what this would mean in terms of actions to take to remedy school segregation. Uh, ultimately, a decision a year later came out, Brown 2, as it's commonly referred to, that didn't give any clear guidance as to what remedying or, or addressing the school segregation that existed would require, and instead sent it back to the local courts and made um, black plaintiffs bring individual cases instead of developing a sort of a sweeping remedy that would be applied in all the 17 states. And so the Brown decision, which will celebrate the 65th anniversary of in May, is a beautiful sweeping declaration of trying to live up more to what our country was founded on, to make opportunity equal for every person. And yet they also, at the same time, were, were kind of showing what the next 65 years would be like in terms of implementation by not necessarily being clear about what implementing this decision would require. That is really great, just kind of framing um, what this case really did and declaring that um, students segregated on the basis of race is, is unconstitutional and, in fact, not equal. And so why is this case so significant to school districts across the country? This is a really important statement about education quality, in my opinion. So it's not just that they said, well, you just have to provide the same amount of funding. And at the time, it should be noted, you know, schools educating black students in the South, in some cases, received a third of the funding that schools educating white students had. I mean, so clearly, they were not equal in terms of basic financial resources, facilities you could point to. But they said, even if you did get that equal, it still would be unequal in terms of the, the quality of the experiences that children are having. And I think that's a really important thing for us still today, that even in the schools that are the highly resourced, and of course, we have seen there was a recent report, in fact, showing that school districts that are predominantly white get more funding than those that are predominantly students of color. So, so we still haven't made separate equal. But they said that that, in fact, would not be equal. And I think that's really important for us to think about. The, the composition of students is a critical part of the educational experience and, and the important role that public schools play in preparing future adults to carry out our, our basic democracy. You know, this is in the post-war World War II era and really thinking about 
the democratic principles we espouse as a country and, and the importance of schools to, to doing that. I think it's also really important to think about this, and, and I think about this in particular having grown up in southern Alabama, uh, in which, you know, my district fought even for almost a decade after Brown before any black and white children went to segregated schools together. And so I think one reality is that were it not for this decision, I, I really wonder about what it would have taken to break this rigid segregation that existed across the South. Um, you know, it took pretty heroic efforts by the basis of trying to just implement this federal court order. And, and then the Civil Rights Revolution combined with that really took off across the South. Um, and by, by 1970, the South was the most integrated region of the country for black students. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that history, to think about the segregation that existed uh, in the mid-1950s in the South in particular, and that it was pretty unlikely that school districts who were led by white school boards, white, white educators, and who had grown up in this way of life were probably un- unlikely to address the segregation. Were they not frauded and forced to, in fact, by, by the courts, by federal administrators? And so I think it's just really important in, in that turning point. You know, we continue to learn about why integration matters for students. And I think that, again, in thinking about the contemporary context and why Brown still matters, it's really important to understand that segregated schools still don't provide, on average, the same kind of opportunities as schools that are more diverse. And and that's both in terms of academic opportunities, um, teacher quality, a lot of resources that matter. But there are also the benefits in terms of the exposure to people who are from different racial and ethnic backgrounds than you are, the socialization aspects, the, the way in which it prompts deeper discussion in classrooms and can and provoke more critical thinking skills. It, it reduces stereotypes. And so a range of benefits for white students as well as students of color. And, and again, to think that this decision has helped to propel local school boards, state officials, federal officials to, to working together to try to continue to overcome patterns of segregation in our schools. Wow. I'm so glad that you really talked about the benefits to integration, um, not just the academic perspective. It's, it's also this social thing that happens when you are interacting with different types of people, that you grow in ideas and critical thinking, that you also believe that there are other ways to see a problem um, besides the way that mm-hmm. you uh, might have been experienced in your own in your own life because you've never really had to experience other types of people. So I'm really glad that you were able to touch on that. And so now I think we can get to you know, what the aftermath was, because we know um, Brown v. Board was in 1954. Um, today is 2019. And in, in the decision was really, really predicated on really southern school districts. How has, uh, what is the aftermath of the Brown decision across the nation, and uh, specifically in the Northeast, um, like Pennsylvania? Sure. I think the Brown decision, again, as I said, is it's a really important um, moment in time in which our our nine Supreme Court justices are saying that um, segregation is unconstitutional. And one of the reasons there was fierce opposition 
in the South during the 1960s is Southern politicians who, um, you know, were getting reelected on the basis of opposing Brown and opposing desegregation, um, were rightfully acknowledging that there was some hypocrisy on the part of Northern politicians and Northern educators who were um, requiring increasing efforts for desegregation in the South, but in fact were relying on what they termed de, de facto segregation in the North to maintain segregated schools. And so, what is de facto segregation? So um, moving forward, yeah, so the, the difference between de jure and de facto. De jure segregation, uh, which is specifically what we now think of Brown as addressing, is segregation by law. So the 17 states that had laws prior to Brown saying that it was unconstitutional or any vestiges of segregation relating to those prior laws. So there's still several hundred districts, mostly in the South, that are still under a court order that came about in the aftermath of Brown at some point to address the danger of segregation that happened. And so it's not just that law, but it's anything that can be shown to be vestiges of that. De facto, on the other hand, is today considered to be um, structures that were not directly related to policies imposed by the state or by local school boards to segregate children. I, I say constructed because there was this period of time for a couple of decades after Brown in which there was considerable uncertainty, actually, uh, as to whether and how Brown would apply outside of the South. And so let's take a step back and just briefly run through the history after Brown. I was hoping you know, you would the do first that. decade after Brown, we, um, you know, Thurgood Marshall actually on the steps of the Supreme Court after the decision in 1954 uh, predicted that schools would be desegregated within five years. As someone who studies this legacy, I, I admire his optimism there because 10 years afterwards, uh, only about 2% of black students in the South went to majority white schools. So that's a far cry from completely desegregated. And in some, some states, there are three states that only the preceding year was the first time that any black student in the state went to a majority white school. Um, but then in 1964, in the aftermath of a range of civil rights demonstrations uh, in, in Birmingham, Alabama, in Tuscaloosa, where two black students were were initially prevented from integrating the University of Alabama, President Kennedy sent a civil rights bill to Congress that eventually was enacted after his death um, that became the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That was a really important lever to try to require more far-reaching compliance. If you remember that I said Brown too made it pretty difficult to um, actually enforce Brown a couple of key things that the Civil Rights Act did is, one, it let the U.S. Department of Justice enter these desegregation cases, uh, which, again, seems like kind of a novel idea. Um, but it was really important because the Department of Justice had many more resources than many of these um, black communities, also didn't have to worry about some of the same uh, issues of racial intimidation that many of the lawyers living in these communities were, were facing when they were challenging segregation. The second thing they did in Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act is 
hugely important, more so than I think they realized at the time. It, it said, if you're not complying with civil rights laws, then we can cut off your federal funding. So any institution that um, receives any kind of federal funding, and this includes private universities who receive like, you know, federal Pell Grants, for example, um, are, have to comply with all applicable civil rights requirements. Mm-hmm. This is especially important to year later in 1965 when the Congress passed the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which is now ESSA, but it infused this expansion of money um, for the first time for federal aid to schools. This was particularly important in the South that had historically had, had lower funding for schools. So the 1964 Civil Rights Act combined with ESEA uh, a year later meant that the federal government could now take a much more active role in saying, if you're not meeting these basic requirements of desegregation, we can cut off this, these funds that you desperately need. And so that, in combined with the litigation that eventually the Supreme Court, again, finally in 1968, started taking up what does desegregation require. Again, almost exclusively thinking about this in the Southern context. And so, so most of these efforts, the, the cutting off of funds that the federal government did or deferring funds, these are all really applying to districts in the South. At the same time, um, you know, there was one effort by the federal government to cut off Chicago's funds, and Chicago got got very upset about it. And so that seemed to really um, make the the department less willing to tackle de facto segregation, which was also a lot harder to prove. You know, in southern districts, there were still some really blatant laws and policies that were being adopted, freedom of choice people placement laws, a lot of mechanisms that you could fairly easily say this is um, perpetuating segregation, we, we can't give them funds. In the North, it was reliance on neighborhood schools or letting permissive transfer laws to let white students transfer out of maybe a more diverse school to a school where they would be in the majority. And so those are, are a lot harder to, to build the facts and to, to prove a case. And so I think one of the, the real disappointing legacies of the late 1960s and early 1970s, and then was codified in some Supreme Court decisions, was to suggest that de facto segregation was beyond the purview of federal action. Even if it relied, for example, on governmental housing policies that segregated housing, Absolutely. but then because of how geographically based our schools are, led to segregated schools that was still seen as more beyond the scope of what educational actors were doing or as a result of private housing decisions that families were making. And, and so in the Northeast, where many of these de facto examples were taking place or the way in which school district boundaries were drawn so that you had um, central cities in one district and a, a bunch of different white suburban communities in other districts, there was then the 1974 Milliken decision, which limited interdistrict or between district desegregation efforts. And so a range of ways in which our law and policy developed to make it such that desegregation efforts were, were not as widespread in regions outside the South. Now, of course, we can think of famous examples of desegregation in the Northeast. Boston, of course, 
is continually cited as um, an example, an example of how it was resisted, in fact. There are other places as well. In Pennsylvania, there were a couple of really important desegregation cases, uh, one in, in Pittsburgh that ended in the 90s and another one in Philadelphia. But even in Philadelphia, when you study that, that the history of desegregation, um, the judges, again, were really weighing, like, what is state action that has to be addressed and what is private decision-making? And really, we're unwilling to order any meaningful reassignment of students in the same way that they were in the South. And so perhaps not surprisingly, given this history, uh, we have seen the trend in school desegregation going in a very different way in the Northeast versus the South, for example. In the Northeast, the percentage of black students in 90 to 100 percent minority schools has been steadily increasing. For, for black students in the South, after the mid to late 1960s, that percentage dropped dramatically and really stayed low through the late 1980s when many of the desegregation plans were in place. It has since started to rise, but the Northeast is still the most segregated region of the country for black students in this regard. Uh, and so I think it's really important for those of us north of the Mason-Dixon line who think that segregation might just be a Southern problem to really think about the fact that we actually have higher levels of segregation and the reasons we give for not addressing it help to perpetuate that segregation that exists. Oh, that was great. That was a great little lesson um, on the history of how case law, our own education laws um, have all been impacted by the Brown decision and also what we're seeing today about how we're seeing a resegregation of schools and also how the Northeast has been very uh, reluctant to desegregate in our space and place in this decision. Um, so I guess what I want to do is end on a happier note because you pretty much just indicated that, you know, Northeast is the most <laughs> segregated uh you know, area in the country and that we are in the process of resegregation across the nation. So what can we do about current resegregation of school districts across the nation and within Pennsylvania? Sure. And I guess one footnote to the de facto issue in Pennsylvania is there was a law passed um, many decades ago that was the Pennsylvania Human Relations Act, which actually said that de facto segregation needed to be addressed. And it created the Pennsylvania Human Rights Relations Commission. That, uh, in fact, was something that segregation was challenged in some districts. Uh, it has had less of a role in recent years, um, but it should, it's one potential vehicle for us to think about how we might reinvigorate, think about how that's being interpreted and implemented to help address the segregation we see in Pennsylvania. You know, there are other states right now in which um, they are looking at state levers for trying to address segregation. Our neighboring state, New Jersey, has a fascinating case right now that was filed last year on the anniversary of the Brown decision, May 17th, in which they, they challenged the way in which school district boundaries were drawn in New Jersey. Um, New Jersey, as we know, is a relatively geographically compact state and yet has more than 600 school districts, more than even Pennsylvania does. Uh, and it has incredibly high levels of segregation for black, Latino, and white students. And so 
the lawyers in this challenge are using pieces of the New Jersey Constitution to challenge the assignment of children to schools on the basis of the town that they reside in. Also, a charter school law that requires charter schools to give preference to children based on the town in which they live. So opportunities like that to think about where state law might help to address these existing issues. And there are other examples, not just New Jersey and Minnesota. There's a multi-decade effort in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, in which the state Supreme Court found that the way in which school district boundary lines were drawn was unconstitutional in the way it racially segregated children. And so they have been implementing for decades now regional approaches to get students to move across those school district boundary lines. Uh, and I think thinking regionally is a really important thing for us to think about in Pennsylvania. We have 500 school districts in the state. And, you know, even in Center County, the relatively uh, non-dense county that I live in, we have multiple school districts. In many areas of the South, one of the reasons that school desegregation was successful was because of the large countywide districts that encompass both white students and students of color within the same school district. If you think about, for example, Montgomery County, which is where you've studied, Heather, you know, there are, there are dozens of school districts of very different composition in close proximity to one another. Because we tend not to assign students across school district boundaries, the way those boundary lines are drawn matter deeply for the level of school segregation we see in Pennsylvania today. The same thing is the case in many of our metropolitan areas. And so we need to really think about the way in which we are establishing school district boundaries and prospects for working across them. I think either thinking about moving students across them, um, there have been consolidation efforts in other places with mixed levels of success. But I think thinking about this holistically and what structures are in place are really important. A couple of other pieces I think need to be part, quite frankly, of a comprehensive approach. We can't just do one thing and think we've solved the problem. We have to do a bunch of things. I think that we need to to really revisit our school choice laws. So in particular, the charter school law in Pennsylvania is possibly one that could be contributing to higher levels of racial segregation. And some of my work studying charter school movement in our state, we find that in urban areas, black, white, and Latino students who are leaving traditional public schools go to charter schools in which they are in with student enrollment that's a higher percentage of their same race. So they have less exposure to other race students. I think it's, it's helpful that we provide transportation for students who are making choices, you know, so that way that's not a barrier to to making a school choice, but I think we have to be thinking and holding school operators accountable for the kind of choices that students are making so that they're not segregating. I think that we have to, to think about how school districts that are diverse are assigning students, are recruiting teachers. Colleges of education need to, to think clearly about how they can contribute to this, addressing these issues in Pennsylvania and other states like Pennsylvania as well in terms of preparing teachers to teach racially diverse students, working in racially diverse communities, and reflecting the diversity of the student enrollment as well. So there are lots of important pieces there. Uh, and then I think, um, you know, education can't do it alone. And so I think increasingly we need to think about all of our different governmental policies and, you know, almost have 
you know, an equity examination that has to go through before we decide where school district buildings are being built. When we think about housing policies that might impact schools and districts, when we think about transportation, including public transportation, how that can work together to jointly support and further integration instead of potentially only creating more barriers to integration or um, creating more segregation. So, you know, I think that in particular, these kinds of efforts are really important in our suburban areas right now. We, we have very diverse suburban areas in our state and in our nation and increasing suburbanization in metropolitan areas. So more students are going to suburban schools than urban schools. But those districts may not have any kind of history with desegregation efforts. And so really thinking about how we might support, give infrastructure to these districts that maybe are newly diverse or are facing novel demographic situations to make sure that we're not just exacerbating segregation and resegregating on a larger geographic scale. So, so spreading out beyond the central city to segregating, you know, we see increasingly a lot of Black and Latino students in the suburbs are going to schools with very few white students there too. And so um, how can we make sure that integration is happening in these places that do have both white and students of color in considerable amounts? Well, I want to say thank you so much for that really robust history of Brown and also the aftermath of Brown and really just going in on a positive note of like, what are we, how should we think about um, policies and practices and systems that have been used to segregate and and, and think about how we can use them also to um, integrate communities and children. And I I just want to say Brown v. Board of Education for me as a as a law student and, you know, as a grad student, and then also as a student in general of living in a community that was extremely integrated for the most part, um, and the impact that it's had on me and my work of recognizing the need to uh, be around and desire to be around people that are different than me um, is so... I think unbelievably life-changing. And so when we say the aftermath of Brown and really talking about Brown at 65, what we are saying is that when people in communities of, of different backgrounds, races, religions, and cultures, and differences and languages are together, we can create a society that is more democratic that is actually living up mm-hmm. to what I believe um, the Constitution um, um, was made to do. And so... A, a really important point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we have to reclaim the language. Absolutely. And, and that's before all of the strategies that I just talked about. If we do not think about our public schools as a public good for all of our children, for our community, instead of the current framing that is focused on schools as a private good, how will it help my child get X, Y, or Z? You know, usually trying to think of it, how can it situate my child to get a desired outcome, like going on to higher education or going on to selective colleges and universities, that I think we're never going to muster the public will to be able to adopt and implement the strategies that I talked about. And so, so we have to get those strategies right. Mm. But I think we also have to first talk, re, reconceptualize of what public education is. And certainly, you know, I don't need to, to tell educators 
about how public education has been under assault. And I think it's not a surprise that this is happening at a time in which our public school enrollment is now majority students of color. And so there's a really important role for us as community members and as educators to talk about the importance of the public schools for all and to, and to talk about our experiences. You know, you talked about why Brown and integration is important to you through the lenses you have. You know, I, as a white student who went to desegregated schools in Alabama, think it's really important to talk about what I got from attending those desegregated schools that I couldn't have got in white, all white or mostly white schools. And, and in fact, um, you know, what we lose when we're not exposing ourselves to more integration. I think all of us have that role to play regardless of what, what our, our professional roles are as, as community members and citizens and local communities. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I'm going to let that be the last comment to this. And um, I just want to say thank you so much again for for your willingness to, to have this very robust and actually very hard and complex conversation about integration and the history of segregation in this country and and where we are today and, and what are the ways in which we can think about um, moving the direction forward for us to be a more inclusive society, a more integrated society. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Frankenberg. Thanks so much for inviting me. Listeners, I encourage you to go to keyedradio.org for more information and resources on today's topic. This is Annette Stevenson saying thanks for listening to Keystone Education Radio. The views and opinions expressed on the Keystone Education Radio podcast are solely the views and opinions of our guests and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. Thank you.